Welcome everybody back to this week's episode of Off The Script. Today we have another interview and uh, we will be interviewing Michael Connie, who is here. Insert intro, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. I'd heard of you before, Michael, actually, even before you wrote that article. I, I saw your page on the Waterloo Alumni uh, website and I thought that you had like a really interesting trajectory in community pharmacy and then when we saw your pharmacy practice and business article as well it was kind of like well now we have to interview you instead of diving right into it let's just go all the way back a little bit because I know a lot of uh, people out there uh, look towards ownership for a pharmacy um, or they sometimes feel like it's daunting Michael why did you decide to open a pharmacy in the first place so the the reason why I did was like it's just one reason professional autonomy and uh, like when you when i was in pharmacy school and this will probably remain true for you guys as well uh, when you're in pharmacy school you accumulate so much knowledge you uh, on the clinical side and everything that you, you learn uh and then you come out and you feel like you know what i want to go ahead and conquer the world uh, only to realize that you finish in about 60 percent or 70 percent of pharmacists end up in community and you have sort of a, a small working station behind a computer uh, and all you do is you tend to dispense mainly because that's the way the business model is set up and that's what you have to do. Uh, and I didn't want to be jaded. I mean, I opened my first pharmacy about a year and a half out of school, um, mainly because I, I was already in the pharmacy profession and I thought, whoa, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, and not wanting to be jaded, I, I figured, you know what, I want to be able to open a pharmacy practice the way I want to practice on my own terms uh, because I didn't want to lose that zeal and I didn't want to lose that um, excitement I had for the profession when I got in. And I thought the only way I could do it literally would be to open my own independent pharmacy. Uh, that way I can practice on my own uh, my own terms. And literally, that's, that's the reason why I did. Mm, that's like really inspiring. I, I think it's a refreshing point of view because I think a lot of people go into the profession with a similar mindset where they realize that community pharmacy is not all the sunshine and roses that we may have been told in school. And it's tough, definitely, to find another alternative to to practicing day in day as a staff pharmacist. Um, I guess what was, I guess like when you when you say that there was literally nothing else that you could do. Did you explore other options when you were working as a as a pharmacist before deciding to open your pharmacy? I didn't necessarily explore any uh, sort of options merely because I didn't feel there was much to explore or what else was to give me that autonomy. Uh, except perhaps maybe if I had worked for a family health team, for instance, and had the ability to be, of course, practicing one-on-one -on -one with patients and in that quote-unquote interdisciplinary of working environment, uh, but there were very few of those positions available. Uh, and as I already said, majority of pharmacists, if you want to practice in community, uh, then you end up working for a big box store uh, or an independent pharmacy. And there are very, very few independent pharmacies around, uh, especially if you want to live in the uh, in sort of in the big cities and uh, you want certain uh, number of hours and, and, and all the things that come with uh, working as a pharmacist. It was pretty hard to achieve in an independent pharmacy. And so I wanted to remain in community. I didn't really want to practice in, in a family health team or any other setting than, than community. Uh, and so uh, while there may potentially be some options, I, I couldn't see it. Uh, and don't get me wrong. I mean, some of the other options would have been perhaps taking some additional 
courses to help uh, patients with, let's say, uh, or anticoagulants, for instance, or um, do a diabetes education or take uh, one of the GRT courses. Uh, but even that, if you still end up working in a community pharmacy, uh, a lot of that professional autonomy is taken away from you, even if you do have those skills. And some people don't even end up using those skills at all because, again, the current business model of pharmacy doesn't support any of those clinical services unless you're employed by the government or in a hospital setting or, as I said, a family health team, that type of setting. And so in community, that that was where the struggle that I couldn't think of any uh, alternative to allow me to do so. And uh, if anyone listening does, please, by all means, share those because I'll definitely be interested in in exploring those areas. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, it's great to hear that you took your passion for the profession and you took that passion and willingness to to employ the skills that you learned and all that education that you had and you wanted to drive it into a force where you could decide where you wanted to go with it instead of letting someone else tell you what you could and couldn't do or pushing you to do one thing instead of the other. Um, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And um, it kind of leads into the next question and maybe some of our listeners don't know yet, but Michael actually has his pharmacies in Saskatchewan. Um, and Michael, I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to open up and practice in another province when you were licensed in Ontario? Or I guess also another question is, why didn't you go up to northern Ontario, for example, where there might be a little bit more fruitful openings for pharmacies in that area? And you know what? I wish my answer was something philosophical or something so uh, interesting. Well, I mean, interesting. My wife is going to kill me for saying this, uh, but I moved out to Saskatchewan love, right? My, <laughs> uh, literally, that was the only reason why I did. Um, I didn't know anything about the province. I've only been here once uh, when my fiance at this time came here for, for school. Uh, and so she, of course, lived in Toronto, grew up there, was born in Toronto. Uh, we met at Waterloo when we went to school together. Uh, and then she moved out to Saskatchewan for school. Uh, and so when I finished pharmacy school, our path, of course, was to get married, and so it just made sense. So uh, with Waterloo's program, I, I finished everything. I wrote the PBCs, I believe, in November. Uh, and then uh, of 2014, uh, and then I moved to Saskatchewan in January of 2015. So I did not practice at all uh, in, in Ontario. Uh, and as soon as I moved here, uh, my very first job was actually with uh, Rexall. So I signed an agreement with Rexall, uh, and I was actually traveling around the province as they are, uh, what do you call them, locum pharmacist, or I can't even remember the term they use for it now. And so uh, I worked from pharmacy to pharmacy from every part of this province. Uh, and most sometimes I would do a shift in one location, drive another five location, and then I'll come home for a day or two and then drive out again. Um, and so the, for me, that was the lucrative part because I managed to be able to negotiate a fairly good base salary in addition to bonuses that I could get. Uh, we didn't have any kids at the time, and my wife was still in school, so uh, I was so young, fresh, and it allowed uh, the ability for me to uh, travel to all these locations, uh, learn a lot. Um, and part of that experience also, of course, is what influenced me to actually want to open my pharmacy on my own, because uh, in, in a lot of the places I worked that there were small towns. Uh, and if you have ever worked in any small town, anyone who's worked in a small town, community pharmacy would know it, it has that very uh, homey feeling to it to to a pharmacy practice where you're working as a pharmacist and you know 
any patient walks in at all and you know their names, you know their families, you know where they had vacation the last time, uh, what prescription medications they are on. Uh, and, and it was a really pleasant experience that I had working in those small town communities. Uh, and so when I decided to open, my main vision was I wanted to open a small town pharmacy in the big city. Uh, and so a lot of the um, things I did when I opened that pharmacy, uh, or my pharmacy was literally centered around that. Uh, and I, I made every point to make sure that the spirit of what I, I was trying to achieve really reflected in it. Uh, and so literally that was the main reason why I moved to Saskatchewan, as I said, was, uh, was for love. Uh, but I tried to maximize the ability to, of course, uh, earn as, as much as possible um, in this area, doing what I was doing at the time. You know what? I think that's absolutely fine because it, it seemed to allow you to experience opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have if you had stayed in the big cities here, I think. So kudos to you for, for taking that leap and, and really getting yourself settled in a, in a place where you've never been. Yeah. If uh, no one out there is convinced to follow their heart, I think Michael definitely exemplifies that. So, I mean, that, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, I want to actually go back and revisit an, another concept you had brought up earlier, which was when you were deciding why you wanted to open up a pharmacy, you had mentioned that the current reimbursement models makes it so that it's almost impossible to work in a bigger pharmacy without focusing solely on dispensing. Going back to your pharmacies, how they're independent pharmacies and how you run them, do you feel that the current reimbursement model, how it's focused so much on dispensing still applies to you? Or do you have an ability to kind of manipulate it with your pharmacy ownership and, and again, practice with some more autonomy with, with different service fees that you might have? Uh, so I definitely the recurrent reimbursement model, I mean, it's it's archaic, right? It's, it's completely doesn't work. Uh, I, I'm sure that most of that reimbursement model uh, was really thought about at a time when it was there was nothing you couldn't really foresee the future and, and what changes were going to happen uh, in our health industry. Right, uh, you couldn't really see uh, life expectancy going sort of where it is now, uh, where people live a very long time and as a result they need to stay on medications, they'd be chronic medications. Um, we talk about private insurance plans and and government coverage. Um, uh, and then changes in population, sort of population health and all that. All of those things, of course, wasn't foreseen when the reimbursement model uh, essentially was set up. And this were like over 100 years or more ago uh, in terms of us having dispensing fees or, or fees for dispensing uh, every prescription uh, medication. And that's dwindling. I mean, as a, as a business owner, you see a lot of the third parties now really seeing their costs go up significantly, as I said, because they didn't really thought about, of course, all the changes that are happening in, in our lives now and how that might affect uh, the premiums that you have to charge people. So, uh, for instance, I believe it's Green Shield, if you try to bill uh, for some chronic medication that is not uh, over a three-month period, they would not even allow it to go through, right? And so all the third parties are beginning to put things in place to limit how much uh, pharmacies can charge for this. Uh, and in addition to that, you do have, of course, uh, these third-party plans setting up those preferred pharmacy networks, right? And so as an independent pharmacy, it becomes really difficult to go in and negotiate with these companies to be their preferred provider, right? You'd rather go with uh, some of the big chains because then there's more access everywhere a patient is. Um, they can some, sometimes do mail order sort of types of deliveries for, for these 
And so as an independent pharmacy, if you're just sitting down waiting and a patient brings a prescription in and you try to fill it and they wouldn't pay the dispensing flow, they wouldn't even pay the drug at all, uh, it really does discourage when the patient finds to you. So although you provide great service, you know them, you know their family, uh, the kind of plan they have is literally saying, no, you cannot fill your prescription here. And so uh, the reimbursement model, as it's really set up now, it, it, it doesn't favor independent pharmacies and even big chains uh, for that matter. Uh, and so when you are used to collecting a prescription or dispensing fee uh, for every prescription you failed now, now you're being forced to only charge for the same patient maybe four dispensing fees per year. So whereas you evolve, now you're only getting a third of that. And so multiply that by however many multiples and almost all the plans getting on as well as government programs. You can already see where pharmacy uh, is already struggling. In addition, if you look at a professional pharmacy, pharmacy is probably one of the only professions, and you can test this out anywhere, that a pharmacy cannot necessarily survive alone just dispensing medication, right? Almost everywhere you go to, you have to have a front end or a front store of sort to be able to offset some of the losses because uh, trying to run a business based on dispensing fee alone is, is really difficult. So as an example, in my very first store that I owned, um, Almost 90 to 95% of my sales was coming from the prescription side. Only about 5 to 10% was coming from a over-counter medication, mainly because I didn't have all the other confectionery or the china or all the other stuff that you can get in the pharmacies, uh, some pharmacy settings, uh, to be able to attract patients and to bring full traffic in uh, for them to patronize and also be able to have a margin on. Uh, and so it, it becomes really difficult to survive as a pharmacist without or as a pharmacy without doing any of the other stuff. Uh, and so clearly the dispensing fee alone, as I said, is, is, is not, uh, it's not doing it. Um, what I personally did as a pharmacy is I, I had to look at sort of my business model and think, okay, as an independent pharmacy, what do I need to do not only to set myself apart, but also provide a value proposition for patients, right? Um, that's the difficulty we do have in pharmacy is we have a very hard time being able to uh, show patients what that value is uh, when they come into us. So often when you see a pharmacy or a pharmacist open a pharmacy and and give you a flyer, you look at those flyers and it will say, oh, we do bubble packing, uh, we do free delivery. Um, I even saw the flyer that says you fill your prescription, we'll send you a free pizza. Uh, <laughs> literally, no word of a lie, you transfer your prescriptions and you get a free pizza. And it had the picture of the pizza in there with like a pepperoni and everything on it. And I, I felt ashamed as a profession literally to have seen that, but uh, that is beside the point. And so uh, what I'm getting at is most of the time, uh, when you see a lot of the ads in any community, any independent pharmacy, they're telling you the things that uh, they will do, right? These are all the things A, B, and C will do for you as a pharmacy. And I look at it and I'm like, well, how is that any different from the guy next door and everyone else? And so. And my whole goal was that how do we I go about creating value, having a value proposition that would be good enough to actually attract patients to come in. Uh, and so one of the things that I did right off the bat is try to find different services that can be offered. Um, I had some experience, of course, consulting with patients around uh, cannabis. Uh, and at the time when I started my pharmacy practice, no one was really talking about cannabis. Uh, it's already been out there. There's been lots of patients on cannabis. Physicians, they didn't know much about it. And patients' uh, only way of getting information is through the internet. So one of the very first things I did was I, 
I set up a consulting service around medical campus that with my experience, because I previously uh, worked for a licensed producer as the an on-staff pharmacist for them. And so I used that opportunity to gain a lot of knowledge around on-run medical cannabis. Uh, and I educated physicians and patients about it. And so when I came out, I thought, listen, this would be one of the first things I would want to do is set up a consulting service of sort. Uh, and the way I had my structure set up is that I normally charge about $100 per hour when I consult a patient. Uh, the very first 15 minutes, I don't really charge anything. I just give them the opportunity to ask any questions they have uh, for them to gauge what I know what I'm talking about or not. Uh, and then once they have a sense of that, uh, I can lay out a whole plan for you in terms of how to get access to the cannabis if you do, how do you select a product, how do you dose yourself, uh, how do you uh, evaluate or assess whether it's working or not, and I will literally hold your hand throughout the entire process. Uh, and so my service fee for that was about $100 per hour. Um, the alternative I give patients is that if you cannot, of course, afford to pay that amount, one of the things I do is that if you are a patron of this pharmacy, then it becomes a value-added service. So as a pharmacist and I own the pharmacy, you are a patient of this pharmacy and, uh, and you fill your prescriptions here, then I can consult with you because I know your medication history, it becomes a value-added service. And almost nine out of 10 times, patients will say, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, and so as a brand new pharmacy, I use that opportunity to actually get patients to transfer their prescriptions with me and then they state. Uh, and so that worked really well to to attract patients. Uh, and then that led, of course, to different referrals from different physicians and other patients. And the way I saw it, this was real value that I was offering to, to patients. Um, in addition to that, uh, some of the services I introduced were pharmacogenomics, which was a huge interest of mine. Uh, and so I did pharmacogenomic testing uh, at, the, at my pharmacy. Uh, I added compounding, which again is specialized at that time there was only probably about three or four pharmacists at most uh, in the Saskatoon that were doing it. Uh, and so there was a huge gap to be filled uh, there. Uh, and then the final thing that I did, and I, again, no one else was doing this, was actually add pet prescription medications to uh, our offering because no one was doing it. The big chains couldn't do it. Uh, and so I figured out a way to be able to get access to uh, pet prescriptions. And we did add that onto offering onto our services. So then the whole point was that we literally just taking care of the whole family uh, and we ran a whole marketing uh, around that. And so those are the different ways I figured, okay, I needed to find differentiating things that can offer real value to patients that would attract them to, to my pharmacy. So that is awesome. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And, um, I, I just wanted to, I, I I, this is a lot to it's a lot to take in, Michael, and I think it's something that is clearly that you've you've had well thought out. Um, I don't know if that was intentional that this is the direction that you were going to take, or if you had done like an environmental scan and realized that you had to be completely different. Um, but I, I feel like there's this air of being different about you, since ownership, private ownership, is not something that's on the mind of someone who's about a year and a half out of school. So when you tell me that you had all of these innovative ideas on how to approach the market, how to approach patients um, and deliver value added services in a way that you could still retain prescriptions, um, I, it's not it's almost not surprising to me anymore as I get to know you more. So I think that's awesome. Big kudos to you for implementing all that. Yeah, thanks. It, it was definitely a challenge. I mean, one of the things that I probably had the biggest challenge was, was on the on the veterinarian side, uh, mainly because it vets weren't used to. So the way vet medications work is 
we get, let's say, a vet med, uh, patients get a prescription for the pad, and nine out of 10 times they fill it at the vet because the drug manufacturers that make prescription medications specific to pets have a marketing policy that they only sell to vets because then the vets are the ones that are prescribing it and dispensing it. Uh, and so often the prices are like, they have about 300, 400% markup on these drugs. Um, yeah, it's, it's significant. Like it's, it's quite huge what they have on there. So when I first introduced the service, I cannot tell you how many calls I got from vets trying to figure out whether I'm allowed to do this or not. They called our college. I can believe like I probably uh, dozens of times trying to figure that out. So then, of course, the college got involved and I had to go back and forth. Uh, and so it was, it was quite, it was, it was a quite struggle because uh, people weren't used to that. Vets weren't used to that. And it was, though I was sort of in, uh, getting on their turf. Um, and so that, that was quite interesting. But uh, the, the other thing too is that I, I didn't get into, I had this notion that, you know what, when you, and that was sort of a rookie mistake, right? Is that when you build a pharmacy, they will come. And, and that's what I, I like to tell people. And perhaps in my writing, I try to get people to understand that. Uh, because you build, it doesn't mean people will come. Uh, you have to figure out creative ways to to get people to you uh, and to get people to also stay. Um, I have a huge interest in marketing. I don't know much about marketing, but I've always thought about uh, how do you go about using all these different marketing tools and using the internet and using social media and all of those platforms to actually not only inform your patients, but also to build a brand, right? Because as an independent pharmacy and pharmacist, you need to be able to build a brand that as soon as people see it, they can recognize it. Uh, if you, you don't do that and you simply feel, oh, I'm just going to build a, a promoter and people will just come in, uh, that only works if you're in like a small town in some remote place that you don't have any competition. Um, that's when that might work. But in this day and age where uh, everyone is competing for people's attention and you have a lot of the big boxes that are spending a significant amount of money on marketing, uh, you as an independent pharmacy uh, and pharmacists have to find real creative ways to be able to uh, compete in that same landscape. And so uh, one of the uh, presentations that I really do is, uh, is one of the presentations I do is called uh, Enhancing Your Patient Experience on a Budget. And so how do you go about actually enhancing your patient experience uh, as an independent pharmacy if you don't have lots of money to compete uh, with the big boxes? Um, and I mean, that would take a whole conversation on how to do that. And so... If we have time, we can discuss all of those uh, strategies. Um, but for the most part, I, I literally had to do things on my own, fail at some of them, uh, and then figure my way out and, and try to solidify and, and brand at the same time. Yeah, clearly from your experiences, uh, you have such a vast array of things that you've done. So it's not surprising to hear that, you know, they were not always all huge successes to start with. You had to work through it in order to find uh, the correct path. Um, speaking about these services that you have offered at your pharmacies, um, I remember you said something earlier about how some of the um, insurance companies can be a bit of trouble to work with, especially as an independent pharmacist. And I know that when we try to charge for services at the pharmacy, it's it's more of the same story. So is there a way that you um, charge the insurance for patients or do you uh, convince the patient to charge them directly and then somehow pay it off with their private billing or private health plan? How, how exactly do you get it? How exactly do you get the patient to pay? Like, how do you convince them? Yeah, so I, the convincing part is really on the value, right? Because I, I just made sure that the, you, you're getting the entire package. And so 
uh, I'm a fairly sort of um, approachable person in the sense of my interactions with patients and, and the way I relate to them. Um, I, I, first of all, I never wear a white coat, um, mainly because I do see that as a barrier, right? It already puts you in a certain pedestal that when you're going to have conversation with patients, uh, it, it, patients might view it as a, a barrier. Uh, and so I, I never wear one. And, and right off the bat, I, I try to come onto the patient level but be able to practice and explain things to patients in the manner that it just makes sense. When you leave my consult room, you'd be like, wait a minute, I never even thought about it this way. It made sense. Um, and it, it goes right back to that value part that I was talking about. Uh, and so from the, the, the way I, I would explain it to the patient in terms of the clinical part and, and the decision we need to make and what it needs to be used. And so uh, I'm just going to back up for a second. When it comes to less the cannabis consult that I, I was doing, one of the ways that, uh, in addition to the consult, is literally tied into the other product and the other services that uh, I, I do have. And so, whether it be the pharmacogenomics, uh, for for some time I was piloting uh, a program with a company where it was based on uh, a pharmacogenomic where we can see how your what do you call it um, your genetics affect how you metabolize uh, cannabinoids in general. So, what is THC or CBD? Uh, and so there is a, a pharmacogenomic kit that can be can be used, uh, and I often use that for patients that I'm not sure what drug product to start them on, uh, in terms of cannabinoids. Uh, and then I do explain it. So first off, given how complex you are, uh, and some of the issues that I've identified from your medication history, uh, I would recommend that you probably do this test because it will be able to help us, of course, uh, be able to select the right cannabinoids to start off with. Um, so I think it's building that relationship and that trust with the patients that way when I'm making a decision, I'm not making it based on the profitability of products, but that the patients will benefit from it. And once they come to trust, uh, my, my, what do you call it, um, my interpretation and once they come to trust, my value as a profession, uh, when I make a recommendation, they go ahead and, and then pay. And often the patient's actually paying out of pocket, uh, mainly because a lot of the third parties don't really have a category in place to for pharmacy services, right? Uh, to reimburse patients for pharmacy services. I mean, and now the the what do you call it? Um, the federal government has changed the regulation to allow or to give pharmacists the status of practitioner. That way, when you bill for any services at all, uh, patients don't get charged taxes on it. But while the rules may have changed in that regard, when you give a patient an invoice. With the third-party plans, they don't have any category uh, on the app part that to say, oh, this is for a pharmacy service, uh, and this is the code that we use to reimburse it. And so most of the patients I do have pay out of pocket uh, for these things, uh, but a lot of them don't have a problem paying because they know you're offering them value, right? Uh, and in addition to sort of uh, offering them the value um, of selecting the, the right cannabinoids that we're using, or if we're talking about pain management, for instance, I often have patients almost eight out of 10 patients that come to see me uh, are coming for pain management. They, they've heard I can help patients with pain management. They've tried everything. It hasn't worked. Uh, they want to learn about cannabinoids because they have a patient uh, or a friend or a family member who has used it and it's worked. Uh, and so they want to know if we work with them as well. Uh, and then because we do compounding, uh, often if I feel they may not necessarily be a candidate for uh, cannabinoids, uh, I literally say, listen, these are other options that we can compound for you. We can compound pain medications that can have um, four or five or six different active ingredients in there. 
uh, that we can topical operations that we can apply uh, with limited side effects, and it, it might have better uh, efficacy than perhaps uh, what you call the cannabinoids. Uh, and so, with that in mind, again, uh, they can be for cannabinoids, but I can, based on my clinical judgment and and um, based on what they tell me, perhaps offer some compounding. Uh, alternatives that I can write up a recommendation to the physician. And once the physician signs up on it and we compound it, uh, we don't submit to third parties, so they pay out of pocket. Um, and uh, and they can submit the receipt, of course, to be a third party for reimbursement. And so uh, it, it really depends on the patients. Uh, for some patients, uh, if they actually do for medication assessment with uh, with the government, I use that as an opportunity to actually do that and then I build a government for for it. Uh, and so there are different different models, but in terms of patients paying out of pocket, for the most part, uh, so long as they can actually perceive the value that you're offering and that I'm offering, uh, they pay with no hesitation. That's good to hear. Essentially, if you sit down and talk to the patient to explain and show them, more importantly, show them the value, then most of the time there's no problem in terms of getting payment or reimbursement. That's right. That's right. On the topic of getting paid, wouldn't it be nice to not have to pay your student loans? Well, that's why we have the sponsor of this podcast, Juno. Juno uses group buying power to negotiate better student loan rates. It's as simple as signing up with your email, entering a few details, and within five minutes, you can save on your student loans for free. Go to joinjuno.com forward slash p forward slash off the rx. Again, that's joinjuno.com forward slash p forward slash off the rx. One question I had, and Faison had brought it up earlier as kind of a joke, was that you have so many services under your belt and you seem to be ahead of the curve in terms of offering cannabis services or veterinary medicine compounding, uh, etc., um, was there some kind of environmental scan you did? Like, how did you find the, the big services that you would provide or the niche services? And what kind of mindset do you need in order to find the next service that would be a niche if you were, you know, someone like in my position that might be working in community soon? Yeah. So I think for me, I, I've always, as I said, I've always had a business mentality type of sense that. Uh, I, I literally, when I started, just sat down and looked and said, okay, what are all these pharmacies offering, right? And I, I, I was referring you back to the the pharmacy card when you normally see a card in the mail. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any of my pharmacies, if you have seen any images at all. Um, I, I, I Pharmacies look completely different. You walk into any of my pharmacies and they feel like you'll feel like you're in a, a gear store. Um, mainly because from the setup, the way you're waiting area, the way the place you sit, because... I've, I've worked in community pharmacy and I was like, man, I wouldn't want to come here if I was sick and I wasn't a pharmacist because most of them are boring. Most of them offer no uh, stimulation. It, it's all very basic and they all replicate the same thing everyone else is doing. Uh, and so it's, it's the constant need. I feel that I need to be different and I need to, uh, I, I have a different vision of what pharmacy practice is supposed to look like. Uh, and so when I first started, I literally just looked at the list of all everything that pharmacies are doing. And I said, what else can be done? What else is no one tapped into? Uh, if you look at pet prescriptions, for instance, in, 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 for pharmacies in Ontario, there's only like two or three pharmacies that are literally just dispensing medication for pets. It, it just made no sense to me. And so 
my my yearn, I, I literally yearn to be find different things that different companies were doing or different people were doing, whether it be in the States or here in Canada, and trying to think of, okay, can we, can I do this better as a pharmacy? Uh, and if I can do it because I'm an independent pharmacy owner, I didn't even have to think twice about it. I first have to like look for the funds, see what I can, uh, what do you call it? I can uh, afford to do and get uh, what do you call it? A student to look into it. There's like a ton of volunteers out there or a ton of volunteer programs out there. And so uh, when I, I started off, I said, listen, I don't have all the time and the energy to actually run a lot of these research on my own. And so the business school here, uh, there's a, an MBA program at a business school here in Saskatchewan. Uh, and I, someone actually mentioned it to me. So I, I approached the school and said, listen, I'm a pharmacy in town. Um, run the community pharmacy. Uh, I just want an environmental scan of sort to be done uh, to help me uh, identify different ways uh, that I can improve my business practice. Uh, and what they do is that for a very small fee, they assign you students because why? They have MBA students and they have students that are eager right, to get onto a project, do something, learn a lot uh, in, in the real world. And so they assigned two students to me. Uh, and it was more of a marketing thing, but then they came and of us did an analysis to see what are the different marketing things that I could be doing to help, of course, improve my, my patient care. And so that was one area that I did explore. Uh, but in terms of like the actual clinical practice itself and the things that can be done, uh, other places that I got ideas from is I attend a lot of conferences, right? Whether it be Pharmacy U Conference or when I was in Ontario, the Ontario Pharmacists Association Conference and the CPH Conference at the time when they run it. Those are the areas that I, I, I network. Uh, I present a lot at the Pharmacy U Conferences. Uh, and often you'll see someone presenting on a business idea that I can sit on and say, oh, wait a minute. You know what? I never even thought about it. While they're presenting this for this particular area of practice, how can you literally, how can I take this and translate it into this area here? Um, and so one of the things, for instance, that I learned at one of these conferences from one of my friends was uh, topical metformin, right? You have a lot of patients that use metformin. Uh, they have a lot of GI-related issues and they wouldn't even use it anymore. Uh, and at the, one of these conferences, I learned that you can actually just make a topical. You take 10% of their daily dose, you can convert it into a topical cream. They can apply it on their hand. Uh, and there's a pattern in the U.S. right now that is looking to pattern a, a cream for it because it tends to be a fairly effective compared to the, the oral one. So then I bring that back into my pharmacy practice uh, and then I share it with the physicians I know and patients who are having issues uh, with, um, with metformin. So it's sort of just literally being out there gathering as much, networking and exposing myself and, and literally gathering as much as you can uh, from the profession because there's a lot of great practitioners out there. Uh, you literally just need exposure and, and uh, uh, the ability to, to connect with uh, other people and other practices. Uh, you, you lost me a topical metformin, to be honest. <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, wait, wait a, wait a second. What? Yeah, most people don't know that, but it actually is. Yeah, you, so as I said, you can take the, the 10% of the daily dose. You, you literally um, crash down the tablet and you can turn it into a cream. Uh, and patients can apply it um, about, I think, twice a day. Uh, and literally, it tends to be fairly effective to, to the, the oral one. So something, something you guys uh, can take into, into practice. Yeah, I mean, we're not a clinical podcast, but um, another question is, where do you apply the cream? Just on your hands, like literally on your wrists. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I'm going to have to say that's the most fascinating thing I've heard this last year. Oh, good, 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 good. And yeah, I mean, after the, I can send you guys the information. You guys can see the department information, but I can certainly send you guys and you guys can read up on it. But it's sort of, it's, it's unique in the sense that um, you don't see it. And so, and that is the value, right? It's, it's, it, 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 there's real value when you, you find a pharmacy that really cares for the patient uh, and it'll go above and beyond to actually make things happen for them, right? Find a solution. Uh, and, and it goes back to the reimbursement model that we were talking about. For, for the longest time and until today, the whole pharmacy uh, industry and our pharmacy community pharmacy really is focused on sort of a dispensing fee and collecting that dispensing fee. Uh, and that tends to be really exclusively tied into the drug as a product, right? You just spend one drug or however many tablets and you get a fee for it. Uh, and nothing really tied into the clinical part. And so while the, the, the pharmacy as a profession, of course, is moving away uh, into a more clinical uh, part, nobody's really talking about the business model that is going to make it work. So as much as we can uh, try to be clinicians, uh, unless we have a, a system in place where uh, all the third parties and governments and all of that can, can get on board, it makes that that reimbursement model really hard. Uh, pharmacy tends to be the only profession, really, that varies significantly from province to province, right? You go to Alberta, for instance, and depending if you have the AP license, uh, you can literally prescribe anything besides like narcotics and controlled substances. Um, and you can prescribe everything, right? If, if you have that, that license in Alberta. And then you go to uh, certain provinces and they cannot even do humanization. They can't even give injections. And so... Uh, one of the ways that we can bring back that reimbursement model that my, my, my work is literally having a fairly cohesive uh, scope of practice for all pharmacists across the country because with that, we'll give the ability for us to be able to build as a coalition um, third parties to understand that regardless of whether you're in Nova Scotia or you're in um, Lethbridge, Alberta, these are the things you can do. You're all doing the same and you have a reimbursement model uh, in place. But instead, our investments model right now, the way it's focused on dispensing fee uh, and it's tied to, to a product really makes it hard uh, for us to, to be able to get out of that model. And not only that, but we tend to be the only profession that really competes on price, right? I don't think you've ever seen any optometrist that is competing um, on price for eye examination or any doctor's offices or, or any entities uh, that are really competing on, on private prices. Uh, for extractions and all those, because most of the associations do have a fee guide in place that almost exclusively, almost everyone follows it, unless maybe someone is doing something shady in a dental practice and may take cash under the table. But for the most part, for the credible businesses, they follow that fee guide, uh, and that's what everyone uses, and it creates a fair and standard environment. Um, we do have like some chain pharmacy. So I, I, have, I was about to dispense a, a birth control to a patient the other day, was trying to transfer to one of our pharmacies. Uh, and then she brings me her receipt from this particular pharmacy chain. Uh, and then I look at it, the amount that it costs for the birth control, the amount that a patient pays out of pocket, which is 100% out of pocket, is less than how much I can pay for that birth control through McKesson. Right? And so I was looking at it and I'm like, wait a minute, how is this even possible that they can get a drug at such a much lower cost and then add in their dispensing fee? And yet it's still cheaper than how much I can buy it wholesale from McKesson. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, and so, again, as a profession, if we're competing on this copay and waiving the $2 fee, uh, having some mock up the dispensing fee to $2, um, 
taking away their markups and all of those things and competing. We are forever going to be competing in that space. But the unfortunate part is here is it's not the actual pharmacists that are doing this. It's a cooperation because these corporations, of course, tied in with, uh, what do you call it? Uh, with uh, shareholders, right? And the shareholders, of course, expect profitability. And so, so long as you tie profitability to healthcare, it, it becomes really hard for you to be able to do anything in, in essentially really the best interest of the patient because um, profit and shareholders always tend to trump uh, the ability to be able to care for the patient and then do the right things. Uh, you don't get paid for sitting for half an hour or 45 minutes uh, with a patient and talking about their medications if it's not a medication review that you get reimbursed, right? Um, but instead, you do have a lot of the pharmacies and a lot of the chains actually setting targets in place that, well, you have to have this number of um, uh, of prescriptions per week, this number of minor ailments per week, uh, this number of uh, medication review or this number of uh, interim supply or adaptation and all of those things. And once you start adding again those targets in place, uh, it makes it really difficult to, to come to the autonomy I was talking about, but it also takes away from the profession uh, itself, right? So uh, they, they, the companies being able to do this and push these uh, targets and all of those things only goes to show that, again, the dispensing fee and, and the current model that we have is just not sustainable and it, it's not really going to work, right? Right. Michael, I, I want to follow up on this point because I think it's an amazing point to make and something that we've also talked about as well on our other episodes. I But I wanted to bring it into the perspective of independent pharmacies. And I wanted to ask you the question, um, with the way that chain pharmacies um, and other wholesale pharmacies practice, do you think that other independent owners and other independent pharmacists uh, or pharmacy owners, they approach their pharmacy from the wrong direction. Because often what I see is that they're trying to com- compete on price or they're trying to drive prescriptions as much as they can by aligning themselves with the doctor or or getting into some sort of agreement with the doctor where, where you know they're being gouged for rent um, so that they can hopefully have the patients fill their prescriptions at their pharmacy instead. It seems to me that the battleground shouldn't be based on number of script counts or, or how many prescriptions you can put out the door, but just like you, where you're, you know, you're you're putting your skin in the game and you're showing people what you can add as value to their to their healthcare overall. I, I think that's the direction that independent pharmacists need to tackle instead. And you're absolutely right. That's certainly the direction. The the challenge is is sort of in the, in this business environment, as idealistic as I was in in terms of how I want to practice, it still makes it difficult in that you still rely on prescription prescription numbers and prescription volumes. Uh, and so uh, one, one of the ways that I try personally try to get away from that is while you do need a prescription volume, uh, the, the, you can only collect so much in fees because the prescription is what, what drives the, the business. Uh, and so one of the areas that I try to um, sort of break that gap is really on the, on the, on the compounding part because when we compound a, a prescription, um, the minimum price we charge really is like for a compounding fee uh, ranges anywhere from like uh, $35 to $45, right? And so the way I looked at it is if I did a compound, for instance, the compound within that fee, I have intellectual property built into it. Um, uh, the, what do you call it? Sorry, intellectual property, the materials that are being used and my staffing time, um, 
I, I don't what you call it, formulas that I, I really have built into that fee. And the way I look at it, if I charge that $35 to $45 fee, that is literally if I'm billing a, a, a blood pressure medication and I'm charging a, a dispensing fee, uh, often the dispensing fee ranges from what ten dollars to let's say twelve dollars, for instance. When I charge thirty-five to forty dollars, that's literally three to four times that one dispensing fee, right? And so uh, the interest really becomes okay. How do we go about growing this, um, growing our compounding uh, sort of services? Because uh, for roughly for every prescription, we we get three times that or four times that fee from the compounding part. And that was how we are differentiating it. For any independent pharmacy that is trying to compete really on the pricing, it's not a, a, a war that you can win, right? Uh, mainly because those companies do have other services uh, that they can use to complement it. And so there's a, a particular chain um, in, in, in this province here. I don't think there, there's much of it out east, actually. Uh, but they are more in the Western Canada and in Vancouver. Uh, but... One of the promotions that we're running recently is that for every time they open a new store for probably for about like six to eight months or a year, they run a promotion where for every prescription that you fill, you get a ten dollar uh, gift card to the store. Right. So just yeah, for every prescription that you fill, you get a ten. So it's not the first time you fill it; every single time you filled it, and so they literally treat in the pharmacy as a loss leader, right? Uh, it just attracts you to come in there and buy other groceries and other foods, but also transfer your prescriptions to them. Uh, and so if you just did the math, and I think I did the math very simply for um, sort of a, a prescription volume for the, the average, it's a significant amount of dollars. Like these guys were spending about 300000 400000 loss a year just on just giving away uh, what they call it, gift cards for stuff people can buy in the store. As an independent pharmacy, you cannot do that, right? You cannot compete on that level in any way, shape, or form. Uh, in, in provinces where they allow for points, right, you get patients that are filling their prescriptions and collecting points on, on it that can be used towards groceries. Uh, and so there's a lot of competition there. And as an independent pharmacy, you, you really have to build a coalition of patients that care for uh, what you do and the value that you offer. Um, and and it all goes to the way you have the pharmacy set up and how you attract patients. And that's why I say I really encourage independent pharmacy owners to move away from telling people uh, the things that they do, the bubble packing, uh, the medication review, the free delivery. Because as I said, that's no different than any other place, right? It's, it's literally different than everybody else offers that same uh, service. And so uh, the key thing really is just focusing on what do you offer as a value, right? As a value proposition. Uh, and and, and I, I go back, like, if you look at, uh, I'm just going to use a company like Apple, for instance, right? If you look at Apple, when Apple is coming up with, uh, what do you call it, a, a product, they literally do not, well, uh, Apple sells your lifestyle, right? They, they, you, you, they build a brand around what, they, they stuff that, why they do what they do, Right. Uh, and then as soon as you see an Apple product, you don't even have to think twice about it. You just go ahead and you purchase it because you know it's really good. They would not. I mean, of course, in in, in recent years, they've been focusing on telling you all the technical parts of the, uh, the camera system and, and what it does. But you'll never, ever catch Apple really comparing their products to anyone else. Right? They just literally just tell you, this is our product. This is why we build this and this is why we do it. Uh, and so having the ability to be able to... Um, build, a, again, a, a, a product and be able to tell people why it is that you do it 
uh, really goes a long way uh, of, of making um, that huge difference. Yeah, I really like the mentality that you took here. Uh, like, I feel like we've spoken about this again before in the podcast, but oftentimes pharmacists will find themselves just undercutting each other as a profession. And this is no different. We always um, try to compete against each other for offering the lowest fees and advertising it as if that is something that should, we should be proud of. So I know, that, I know that you talked about how you want to just advertise the actual services that you're providing. And earlier you talked about how the current pharmacy business model doesn't necessarily reflect that. Is there any change in the exact community pharmacy business model that you think could be implemented in order for this to to be, I guess, seen across pharmacies so that they can offer more services like you are doing? Um, well, as I said, if, I think the very first thing that needs to happen really is sort of a consistency across the board in terms of what pharmacies do and what pharmacies um, can, what do you call it, uh, the, the sort of the scope of practice for pharmacists, I think is the a, is a very first thing. Uh, the, the second thing is it, it's really hard to articulate what a business model would look like, especially if our products are focused on uh, sorry, if our services are focused on, again, products, right? And so uh, if you look at the Pharmacy Act, for instance, right, and you look at what is what is the, the Protected Act for pharmacists, really the Protected Act is just in sort of the, the dispensing, the preparation, the compounding of, of medications and all that. Uh, once that is, uh, I'm, I'm thinking probably maybe about, 10 years or 20 years from now, a lot of the stuff that we do right now that is protected, quote unquote, uh, based on pharmacy acts and why we are pharmacists, it's very, it's very likely that a lot of robots or um, artificial intelligence uh, and things built around technology uh, would be able to uh, replace some of the things that we do, right? And so uh, that whole dismantling part that is solely based on products, uh, we need to shift away from to, to get to the clinical services. And then once the clinical services are in place, what are the things that we can do to really supplement what other professionals do? Now, unfortunately, a lot of the things that we try to do really goes into the turf of what other physicians do, right? I mean, we cannot diagnose, but for the most part, we have so much turf wars with physicians because uh, <clears throat> we tend to mirror some of the things that we, we can be doing together as professionals. And so um, get into the clinical part and trying to have a, a real value proposition for why um, and how we could make some money, I think, will be, will be sort of what we as a profession need to be discussing in the next uh, decade to make a difference. Uh, on the reimbursement side, I believe like a few years ago uh, when I, I was uh, a student with the uh, OPA, uh, Green Shield at the time was actually running a pilot program with pharmacy, pharmacies and pharmacists uh, to reimburse those pharmacists or pharmacies for management of um, hypertension, for instance. And so uh, clinical practice or clinical, um, uh, what they call reimbursement, that is based on outcomes, right? And so you as a pharmacy, you have this number of patients that you're dispensing uh, hypertension type of medication from. How do you go about actually ensuring that uh, what do you call it? They're meeting their targets, the, 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 some real clinical outcomes. Um, because you already do see that model with, with uh, f physicians, uh, that uh, some reimbursement model for physicians are based on the ability to actually be able to have 
uh, those clinical outcomes. And I, I do foresee we as pharmacists, as we move more into the clinical part, uh, literally having a reimbursement model of sort. It may not be exclusive. It may still be tied on. It may be um, a hybrid of maybe dispensing in, in the clinical part, but that being able to be tied into uh, those outcomes. Because then that what would happen was that uh, for patients in those communities, if they see a certain pharmacy that has like real clinical outcomes, they want to patronize that pharmacy because they want to be on the winning team. They want to be on a team that can actually uh, assess them in being able to achieve the outcome. Uh, like any profession, they are bad apples. So anyone at all who just wants to solely dispense and not do anything may, may not be that profitable, right? Um, and so that's one way to, to look at a, a possible reimbursement model. Uh, the other thing, which I, I don't know exactly how this may play out, but if you think about it now, almost every single company that is out there, especially uh, the technological companies, almost every software that you see out here, you cannot buy them in a box anymore. Everything is on subscription models, right? Even Twitter is exploring subscription model. Uh, you, you look at uh, Apple, for instance. Apple is moving away just from the products that they do. Uh, and a lot of the services that they are trying to offer now is based on products, whether it be Apple Music, um, News or Arcade, and all the different games that they have. Uh, almost every single one. You look at Google. Uh, right now, starting sometime next year, you guys have pain for uh, storing your photos with Google, every single company that you can think of uh, is going through the subscription model part because subscription and reoccurring model uh, revenues is the is the path to to being successful in the part to actually making money. Uh, being able to collect the one fee from patients from dispensing the prescription at one time doesn't really get anywhere. So just imagine if you had patients and you build a certain patient pool that every a uh, year or every year they pay a certain fee and from there they can literally just fill the prescriptions uh, as much as, the, as they want or so any prescription they get without a fee. Uh, that would tend to be quite well, especially if you build a real clinical practice that patients can benefit and you can build a patient pool, uh, then they will come, they will come for, uh, for those services. Uh, if you look at a company like Costco, for instance, Costco really doesn't make money on, I mean, their margins are very thin on the toilet paper and everything else they sell they sell, uh, they use their pharmacy as a loss leader that pulls patients into, uh, into the Costco. And the real money for them really is when they make their money is on the annual uh, subscription, so the annual fee that people pay uh, to, to be part of Costco. And so a reoccurring uh, sort of subscription model uh, that literally has that reoccurring uh, revenue tends to be a fairly lucrative one. How that translates into pharmacy practice uh, and how we can make that work, I'm not entirely clear. Uh, but I know there is something there that perhaps we may need to explore. Michael, yeah, I feel like I feel like you've already read the things that we're going to talk about because the 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 next point that we wanted to bring up and it really ties so well with everyone everything that we've just been talking about and and new technologies that are that are persisting outside of the pharmacy world as well as um, looking at those as kind of like a a warning because you know things it doesn't take too long for things to trickle down into the healthcare system as well um, and I think you know where I'm going with with this is uh, Amazon in Amazon pharmacy and uh, I think this has been kind of like a topical point that has been brought up in the community of pharmacy about how this might impact 
community pharmacy model in Canada. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like it's 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 a it's a legitimate threat? Do you think we're already too late to adapt or or is is exactly what you're trying to do almost like future proofing your practice of community pharmacy against something like Amazon? Yeah. So I, I personally think we are we are late to the game. Uh, we really are because, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of the the technologies and a lot of processes that needs to be built in place, perfected for for us to have scale for it to actually make a real impact in pharmacy practice. Uh, as it, it is, uh, we, we are like ten years behind. Uh, that if we were to start now, uh, it's going to take a, a really long time for us to be able to get uh, where we we need to. Um, if you look at uh, Amazon, for instance, they've already built a platform. Uh, and this is how I, I, I shop on Amazon a lot. Um, and I was thinking about it the other day. And I'm like, I will go get my prescription from Amazon because not only have they built the, what do you call it, the, the technology, but they have great customer service, right? Like it's, it's probably one of the best customer service out there. Um, but what is powering them really is the technology part. It may be a little bit different. I mean, a lot of the fear that we're hearing about Amazon really is starting from the U.S. because they have very different reimbursement models, right, um, uh, in place as well as sort of how drugs are priced and the generic versus the brand and the negotiations that goes in the background uh, and who is profiting from uh, from that. Um, a lot of the big companies uh, in the States, of course, I think other CVS uh, or or uh, Walgreen, I think one of them even bought like an insurance company, right, to to be able to expand your offerings and and uh, and do a lot of the things that Amazon is is doing right now. So it is a real threat. Uh, the the only thing is that, like the way the pandemic has been, right? The pandemic has been right now is a lot of small businesses that were doing okay, but weren't doing that great. Um, what the pandemic did was they could have been closed down maybe in about three or five years. But the pandemic just accelerated that, right? It's become like an accelerant. Uh, and the way I see it is the same with Amazon, that independent pharmacies that were struggling, perhaps that uh, haven't gotten to where they need to and that were struggling, it's very likely that should Amazon come into Canada, uh, literally those businesses might, might just accelerate their closure. Uh, and then what that would do is that it will probably be sold off to any of these big box stores, right? So whether it be your... Uh, your shoppers or um, Loblaws and, and, and all of the companies, uh, it might get sold off too. Those companies are trying their best. The big box stores, of course, are trying their best to bring a certain level of technology uh, into the offering. But most of it is really terrible that you wouldn't want to use it in, in the first place. And so it's going to be really hard for uh, any of those big boxes to compete with Amazon or for independent pharmacies to compete with Amazon. Uh, who has the technology in place they have? customer and uh, dedication, uh, they make the process really seamless based on your technology. Uh, I mean, in Ontario, if you, a patient were to email a prescription to a pharmacy uh, and say, oh, well, or take a picture of the prescription they have, they couldn't even text it to a pharmacy or send it anywhere. And the pharmacy would be like, no, we only accept prescriptions from a physician. Uh, and so it, we created these barriers in place that even the technologies we have now uh, we, we haven't been able to really use it to our advantage. I mean, how hard is it be? Like in my pharmacy, for instance, what we do is you have a patient and you you have a prescription from your doctor's office. One of the things I, uh, I did for, for patient satisfaction is I had a dedicated cell phone for the store. Uh, and I just bought an iPhone, a dedicated cell phone, and we text with our patients. Uh, so, man, you, you have a, a tech on your head or anywhere at all. 
that you know sure about. You can take a picture, you can send it to us, you can ask us questions about it. And we can recommend that you need to go see your physician or come in. We can do a minor element prescribing for you. Uh, if you have a, a, a prescription you got from the doctor's office, take a picture of it, send a text it to us. We'll fill the prescription and you pick it up when you bring the hard copy. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of these things that you, you want to make the process seamless for patients. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that. Uh, the things Amazon, of course, is not going to be doing is they're not going to be feeling uh, narcotics or control substances and all that. They're simply going to be focused on the sort of the, the chronic type of medications. Uh, and that's where the, the benefit is. Unfortunately, that's where almost about 70% perhaps of our revenues will be coming from, right? And so uh, it's going to be really tough, not only for independent pharmacies, but for the big chains. Uh, and one of the only ways to try to truly complete, compete with the Amazon is going to be acquisition, right? They're going to try to acquire as many uh, pharmacies or uh, actually uh, come together um, and, and have a, a big market share. Uh, but besides that, uh, it is going to be really hard to, to compete uh, with Amazon once it comes. So it's certainly a real threat. And I don't think we, we are able to have the, the technology uh, capacity to be able to compete on that level. So it will be real interesting to see what the impact is. I think it's really interesting to see your perspective and see that you're not only expecting Amazon to take over, but you are also critical of our current system and realize that we do have our own flaws. I know that when we have this discussion, sometimes we're quick to point out how Amazon can fall themselves, that if they can't deliver a package straight to our door, how can we trust them to deliver a drug straight to our our, our family members or to ourselves? But I, I realize that you have a much more, I'd say, not just a a cynical view, but a realistic view about the future of pharmacy ahead of us. I guess to end it on a not entirely <laughs> sad note, what we want to do is ask you a question that's in, in the theme of our season. And um, it's uh, what other modalities do you think pharmacists can utilize or optimize to provide optimal patient care? So this might be something that maybe we aren't aren't doing, but we already can do within our current scope of practice? Well, I think there's a lot that still can be done. I think the one of the unfortunate things that I have, haven't really seen is on, on the ability for pharmacists to actually have specialties, right? Um, very, very, very few. I mean, even in school, you, we don't get trained. We, it's very standard. This is what you do. Uh, the only specialization you might see is, again, geriatrics. Um, and literally, that's about it. So I think for for uh, for that particular question, I, I think we need to be able to, as an education system, be able to have specialties. Like, I don't know why, as a pharmacist, you cannot specialize in dermatology, for instance, or um, besides sort of uh, diabetes, which everyone is doing, uh, seizure control or specific areas that are there that we know a lot of patients struggle, that you have to wait for months before they can see um, a specialist. And we are the first point of contact. And so uh, being able to see programs or have the ability to be able to, uh, for pharmacies to, again, specialize in some of these areas, I think will go a long way um, of, of offering sort of that value proposition I was talking about and, and a differentiation uh, that uh, I've been referring to. And I think those are the areas that uh, we need to perhaps grow and, and try to adapt into our education system uh, to, to offer some real value. 
What do you think, Michael, about uh, board-certified specialties? Do you think that's something that's being underutilized? Because um, I hardly ever see pharmacists who are board-certified specialists other than those that practice in hospital in that specific uh, scope. Absolutely. I think that's going to be very necessary, and I think we need to develop more. Um, and uh, and the reason why I'm thinking so is that once you come out of pharmacy and you you start practicing, that's when you really find the areas that you're interested in. So, if you find any uh, areas that are that are of interest to you, like I would love to specialize in dermatology, for instance, that I'll be able to tell patients, you know what, these are the areas, and when I'm limited, I can refer you to to um, uh, what you call the specialist. And not only does it actually offer the clinical practice related stuff we've been talking about in the body proposition, uh, but it also leads to a certain level of professional satisfaction, right? Uh, unfortunately, you will see a lot of pharmacies and uh, and once you start, uh, once Chris starts working, uh, you, you notice this is, uh, it becomes very monotone and very uh, monotonous and, and you're constantly looking for ways to excite yourself as a profession and uh, as a professional. And so being able to be, being able to get certified in, in all of these different areas uh, can add to professional satisfaction uh, that will lead people to want to engage more clinically with patients. Uh, and all, hopefully be able to, again, provide that value propositions that patients will pay for uh, versus having to wait less than months to see, see a specialist, right? And so uh, I certainly think besides uh, hospital, uh, we do need more of those in, in, in community, absolutely. I guess to summarize, we should really we should really promote our strengths as being accessible, but not um, not rely on being such a generalist we should specialize in um, uh, different different disease states or different uh, different specialties like you said so that so that patients can basically utilize our uh, our services to the full potential absolutely absolutely and and the, and the last thing to, to add is um, almost every professional uh, every profession is going through the renaissance right it's, it's every profession is literally going through rebirth uh, and pharmacy is an exception uh, Sort of medicine is the same, uh, optometry, dental, almost all these professions are going through a rebirth that uh, we, we literally need to be able to identify the areas that uh, are of concern because if we do not make those changes within the next 10 years, uh, literally we're going to miss the mark and, and soon enough, um, I don't want to say pharmacy will become sort of the, the blockbuster uh, of, of professions, it, it, it is going to have a real effect and a real impact on the profession. Uh, and I think uh, collectively, we need to be able to identify the areas that we need to work on as we go to the reverse uh, and find, sort of refine what pharmacy and pharmacy practices. Uh, because if we do not, uh, unfortunately to say, it's going to be really hard for us to be able to project the, the profession in the light we want to see it uh, a decade or two from today. I think, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to say, I just want to thank Michael for, for, for allowing us to see his perspective of the profession and where, where the future of pharmacy looks to be taking us and as well his own experiences. Cause I think, um, it's, it's something that's, that's rarely to be seen as, is having that kindling of passion right from the beginning and, and telling yourself that, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be one to try and stick it out for, for years and years and then see what I can do. You decided to just go right into it and jump into a modality, which you weren't familiar with and, and approach it in a way where you realized that 
everyone else, you, you accept it and realize that everyone else is pretty much trying to do the same thing, but you want it to be different. And that only doesn't apply just for yourself or or for your practice, Michael. But I think that's something that during like this rebirth that you're saying of pharmacy needs to be applicable for our profession and for people working in the profession as well. So I, I really appreciate that perspective and and thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. It's been it's been quite a pleasure. Man, thank you guys for having me. This has been this has been fun. So thanks again and. Um... Uh, again, good good job on what you guys are doing. It's of real value, and uh, I'm definitely happy to be here. So thanks again, guys. Thanks for coming on, Michael. And for everyone listening at home, make sure you research topical metformin, and uh, we'll provide some links to it on our, on our website, offthescriptshow.com. The script is produced by Tom Fung, Faison Baig, and Chris Tse. Quality control is done by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. However, we are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional if you have any questions about your own personal health. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music, and thank you to Chill Hot Music for allowing us to use their music in our intermission and ending. You can find more great songs at chillhop.com slash listen.